The old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. In terms of an old world uh, that is dying, um, I uh, took a trip uh, with my family uh, to Europe uh, over the summer in July and August. And we visited um, several countries, uh, Finland, France, Bulgaria, and the United Kingdom. Uh, and it's in the UK phase of the trip that I want to talk about for the podcast this week. Um, I had uh, a lot of pleasure in the UK, uh, you know, showing uh, my daughters around uh, to things like the British Museum um, and uh many of the sites in London and also visiting family that we had in Birmingham and Coventry and um, a great deal of pleasure also in the kindness of the people that we met there. Uh, but one couldn't help but notice um, that um, the United Kingdom is, is a nation under stress. Uh, there's a heat wave all throughout Europe and they were noticeably bad um, at uh, dealing with that. Uh, and, uh, you know, by press reports, um, there's a, a great deal of excess deaths uh, due to the country's lack of uh, air conditioning and and uh, ability to deal with you know the ongoing climate crisis. Uh, but there was also um, uh, everyone we talked to was you know kind of very stressed out by inflation, uh, by um, the sort of environmental degradation that has led to sort of polluted water supply um, and to, towards the sort of general decay of public uh, spaces. Um, most visible, I think, in sort of public transit. Uh, one couldn't help but notice that the train system in the United Kingdom was uh, less reliable, less quick, uh, and also quite a bit more expensive than that on the continent. Um, so I, you know, I was thinking a lot about what I was seeing there and to kind of make sense of it, I, I turned to um, uh, Richard Seymour, uh, one of the British journalists that I most admire, um, a radical writer of longstanding, uh, known for his sort of polemical writings, um, uh, author of uh, many books, including uh, what relevance to nation listeners um, about Christopher Hitchens called Unhitched. The Trial of Christopher Hitchens, uh, but also books on uh, Jeremy Corbyn, a recent book on the Twittering machine, um, a critique of social media and Twitter, um, and most recently a book called The Disenchanted Earth, a kind of very uh, somber and thoughtful meditation on the state of the environment. Um, Richard is a sort of independent journalist uh, who um, survives uh, through uh, Patreon, um, uh, and uh, he is um, a very smart commentator on English affairs uh, and British affairs in general. Um, so I met up with him uh, in downtown London in our the hotel room uh, where we were staying um, on August 14th. Uh, the quality of the audio is, I think, uh, you'll listen to it. You have to make a few allowances. It's taking place in a sort of public space. Uh, but I, I think um, what is most important was Richard has to say. And I think he provides a sort of very thoughtful, uh, incisive, and uh, committed uh, view of what's happening um, in the United Kingdom. And a lot of what he says has relevance to the broader world. I mean, I, I was very struck that you know his portrait of the um, UK as a country that has a kind of 
you know, feckless uh, center-left political leadership, um, uh, um, radicalizing right, um, and a kind of uh, impasse or gridlock to deal with fundamental problems uh, like climate change. Um, that's not unfamiliar in other parts of the world as well, uh, such as the United States, uh, Canada, and much of Europe. Um, uh, so uh, I, uh, I was very glad to talk to Richard, and I, I think uh, listeners uh, will be very interested in what he has to say. We can agree uh, maybe that there does seem to be sort of like a, a real uh, political crisis in the, this country or uh, a, a larger sort of social and economic crisis. And I thought maybe um, in your uh, um, uh, po- blog post uh, for your Patreon account, you talk a lot about um, uh, how um, the current uh, inflationary moment is driving this. Uh, so do you want to like just lay out the sort of material economic basis for this crisis? Sure, but any, this inflation is, I think, the, um, uh, I, I hate to use cliche, but it's the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, um, there had been a number of uh, building crises for some time. So uh, living standards had not risen since, mm. uh, for most people, since 2008. In fact, had fallen, objectively. Mm-hmm. Royal wages had not risen. Um, there was uh, a sensation that uh, possibly because uh, the Conservatives wanted to build some sort of hegemony, that they would actually try and um, reverse that by uh, pursuing a, a high-wage economy, or at least uh, bump up wages in some parts of the country or some uh, sort of important labour forces. I think that was always deluded. But the fact is that that's not happening. It's not even come close to happening. And one of the um, effects of um, the uh, pandemic was to incentivize corporations to massively raise prices um, far ahead of, you know, I mean, I talked about this the other day in terms of uh, uh, the data which shows that the share of inflation that is due to wages is 7.9%, um, 53.9% due to corporate profits. Historically, it would have been the reverse. Mm-hmm. Historically, wages would have made the greater share of inflation, um, quite rightly. Mm. Um, so there, there is this um, unique opportunity structure for uh, particular... I mean, I, I think... Um, Partly it's profiteering from some monopolies who were able to use their market control just to jack up prices um, and who have exploited certain very real problems in the global supply chains, um, very real problems in terms of ecological blowback, producing droughts and causing storms and basically making things a lot harder to produce, a lot uh, more expensive. But they've been exploiting that to jack up their profits. Um, so it's a very opportunistic, profit-driven shock. That's, that's, that's just part of it, though. Yeah. I, mean, I, have to, I think that most corporations operate in a relatively competitive economy mm-hmm. and are not at liberty just to charge whatever they want, yeah. um, particularly if they don't have connections to the government who always back them up. So um, it's just that there was this unique window of opportunity here um, where essentially um, demand had uh, collapsed abruptly, mm-hmm. Um, businesses were shut down um, and uh, they were being those that still operated were being subsidized massively by mm. the government 
and uh, at that point you see the prices start to rise in a more serious uh, parts of industry um, and of course their profits skyrocket hmm. okay but again that's uh, just one, one aspect of it you know the, so we had the austerity and that was supposed to resolve but the crisis it didn't we had the political crises that were in a sense metabolizing the problems mm. with the economy so you know people's living standards start to go down there's a number of things you can say about that either you can go to the left mm. corbyn style agenda nationalize things uh, raise minimum wage uh, that kind of thing or you can go to the right and say keep out the immigrants mm. um, build uh, border walls one thing you can't do plausibly is stay in the center um, mm. and we've seen the center be squeezed out of british politics entirely Interesting. Go back and look look when this started to happen, because it wasn't immediately after two thousand eight. It took a few years. Mm-hmm. You know, the first thing that p- happened when the crisis struck credit crunch was people actually reached for the centre like a kind of security blanket. We want some honest brokers. We want people we can trust, not ideologues. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, get the Lib Dems and the nice middle of the road Tories and the nice middle of the road Labour and all of those uh, hoovered mm-hmm. up the boats. By 2015, it's a totally different situation. Mm-hmm. And because the left is nowhere to be seen at that point, it's UKIP, um, the UK Independence Party, mm-hmm. radical right wing, um, and it's a, it gets something like 15 million votes. I can't remember, not 15 million, 15% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then of course, you know, after a long period of time, you had a Corbyn breakthrough, and well, Corbyn was put back in his box, um, but the radical right was assimilated into the Conservative Party. So there's been this long-running um, political crisis, a crisis of representation, which has produced some challenges to the old way of uh, running things. And I think that um, there, you know, there's been a failure on the part of governments uh, of, you know, um, uh, for the last. Um, 14 years, uh, whatever, however you want to um, break up the temporality of it. Um, there's been a failure of them to be able to articulate a common political will apart from Brexit. And even that, of course, took forever to get done. Um, it was fiercely resisted by a large sector of the population, but it was fiercely resisted, but also even it having been delivered, it's, it was never clear what it was supposed to mean, mm-hmm. what measures it was supposed to include, and now nobody's really happy with it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, That doesn't mean to say that those who voted for it want to go back on it, but it just means nobody's quite happy with where we ended up. So there's the underlying economic crises, there's the way that was politically metabolised and it was supposed to be resolved, it never was, um, there's um, the slashing of public service budgets and the sort of um, resulting decomposition of the public, mm. um, uh, you know, the public economy. Um, so, you know, what you have is um, the old dilemma of private sector affluence, but only for the, the affluent yeah. and public squalor. Um, and I think in that situation, things can go either way. You know, public squalor tends to benefit the right in various ways. Mm-hmm. Because people don't have institutions. Yeah. Um, public institutions they can relate to, they can reach out to, they can relate to one another in. They don't really feel they have much power or anything to do in the public sphere. Um, and so they can much more easily become dependent on celebrity right-wing politicians. Um, so the fact that it's now, you know, propelling once more to the left, having gone so far to the right, mm. um, 
that was not a given. And there's a lot about Britain that you would think that's not possible. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. because, you know, the, the left was feeling absolutely thrashed. I mean, you, you know, you wouldn't have thought Corbyn could win the leadership of the Labour yeah. Party, but he did. Um, but uh, after 2019, um, you know, left was feeling thrashed. Uh, the unions probably didn't have much hope for themselves. And if you looked at objectively at the economy during the pandemic, you would think, all right, so basically what's going to happen is after this, a lot of people are going to be put on flexible contracts, temporary contracts. Um, they're going to use it as a moment to sort of rationalise top-down their whole uh, company infrastructure, purge a lot of the workforce. Unions are going to become weaker. And after all the spending of COVID, they're going to say, oh, well, now we have to cut back on public services as well, again. Um, but I think for some reason it's just hit the threshold. It's just too much. Um, and taken in conjunction... Weirdly, um, although I think the emphasis on Boris Johnson has been excessive, you know, mm -hmm. and his, you know, various de deceptions and yeah. corruptions and so on, nonetheless, weirdly, that just, I think, uh, summed up everything um, mm. for a lot of people. They don't care. They don't even follow their own rules. Mm. Um, and, you know, I couldn't visit my father while he was choking to death in hospital with COVID and these people are having parties. It's that, yeah. a very rudimentary form of class consciousness there. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, I think there's always been a, a part of uh, many on the left a sort of skepticism of any politics that's too personality-based and that, like, you know... Uh, uh, but if, you, if someone like Boris Johnson and his actions uh, can also have that sort of class meeting or, you know, can, uh, can be, seen, be used to discredit uh, part of the ruling class, then the uh, then the sort of personality focus uh, becomes very effective. I mean, and it, it, I mean, it also happens to be the case that you know often uh, real revolutions are you know produced by people like thinking that you know the king doesn't care for us <laughs> and is corrupt, you know, mm -hmm. and as uh, so no, that the, um, uh, so you want to talk to and um, uh, to our listeners, many of whom aren't in the United Kingdom, about the, the sort of sort of new militancy that we're seeing with enough is enough, and with the wildcat strikes, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then what do you think that's leading up to? First of all, I think we have to get it in proportion. Um, strike rates are still historically low by mm -hmm. any standard. I mean, uh, if you look at what's happened after nineteen ninety one, industrial action in this country plummeted. Mm -hmm absolutely plummeted. Yeah. Days lost of strike action reached record lows throughout the 2010s. Yeah. So things getting worse for people doesn't necessarily make them, you know, like to onto the streets, onto yeah. the barricades, all of that. Um, it can often lead to people feeling powerless and, you know, um, and also, you know, objectively, it was harder to join a union. Yeah. There weren't many sectors of the economy that were unionized. So we're in a situation now where there's an incipient recovery from decades mm. of um, decline, not just in terms of strike rates, but in terms of union density, mm. each share of um, employment and so on. Um, and then there's the, um, you know, the, the fact that um, for decades the left was like losing ground in terms of its publications were not, nobody was reading them, mm. its parties were shriveling, its representation in the Labour Party was shriveling. Obviously 2015 marked a turnabout in that, mm. but I think a lot of people overestimated how bad the defeat for the left yeah. in 2019 was. 
I mean, it was a pretty bad electoral defeat. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people just like threw up their hands and walked away, rather than fight for what they had won mm. already. Um, because the institutions um, that the left has been able to build, um, as much as I think you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to build up uh, an adequate theoretical sort of understanding of the world, um, the institutions didn't exist. You know, Momentum is a serious organization. Um, it's way too small, far too small, but it's way bigger than anything I remember back in 2014, 2015. Um, the, the, you know, Novara Media has become a nationwide uh, left media platform, not as uh, big as the online right. They, they're, they're much better at this sort of thing, YouTubing and all the rest of it, but still they're doing well. Um, and they weren't there before. Um, and then one of the things that I think that has happened is that the trade union leaderships, since the late 1990s, the trade union leaderships moved to the left in an unprecedented way. We got what was called the awkward squad, um, who were a bunch of militant left-wing leaders, but often not as militant or left-wing as people assumed. Mm -hmm. But actually, they represented something. And the rank and file weren't voting to strike anymore because they didn't feel powerful enough, mm. they didn't feel they had the opportunity. But um, uh, the, the, they, they were voting for left-wing leaders, they were voting mm. for left-wing bureaucrats, and started to see them, especially in response to how contemptuously New Labour treated them and how far to the right New Labour went, started to see them moving further to the left, so that by the time of 2015, for the first time in the history of the trade union movement, they backed the socialist. They never backed the socialist in the Labour Party's leadership contest. Wouldn't even come close. They backed the socialist and they defend him against an internal coup. And they stick around, and basically, after 2019, they haven't really, even though they kind of, uh, the coalition broke up, and some of the more moderate unions went behind Starmer, they haven't really changed how they feel about policy, or how they, what they want from things, and neither of trade union members. So, there have been, over time, things happening under the surface, despite what appears to be, you know, the... Uh, horrendous decomposition of the left and the labour movement. Mm. There have been incipient forms of recovery. So here we are in a situation where there's been a number of symbolically significant strikes where the leader of the RMT, historically one of the most despised unions, like the tabloids always <laughs> go after them. Um, they're slandered to hell. But Mick Lynch, the boss of the RMT, um, comes on with his kind of like very basic outsider credentials um his uh very um placid demeanor mm. you know he's not somebody who you can wile up um because he's a skilled trade union negotiator and militant right mm-hmm. um but he's also quite clever um and he sort of takes i mean this is the first sign you see that something's shifting he um, argues with these newscasters who are trying to give him what I would call the traditional class dressing down. Mm-hmm. You get a working class person on television, this um, upper bourgeois newscaster uh, um, dressed in an expensive suit and with expensive hair and nails and whatever, gives them a dressing down, like tells them off for mm. being a national disgrace, whatever it happens to be. Um, and he just totally destroys all of it. And 
Um, I, I knew that something was happening there when you saw even a bunch of bien-pensant liberals sort of go, oh, he's quite impressive, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, people were desperate for something because Starmer and the Labour Party were desperate not to give anything, desperate not to say anything. They just wanted to let the Conservatives destroy themselves and then come in and then try and uh, implement some very modest reforms. Um, and so I think there was a, a hunger for that. And you started to see, I think, because of the unique window of opportunity um, brought about by the fact that there uh, was a higher demand for labour than there was in, in the actual economy, um, that gave workers a unique window of opportunity. They never had this much bargaining power before. And so you started to see groups of workers who had never been on strike, um, like BT uh, call centre workers, mm -hmm. um, going on strike. And, you know, apart from other groups of workers who have gone on strike before, but actually, you know, um, it's all coming together in a sort of contagious way. And then you start to see uh, dozens of wildcat strikes breaking out everywhere. Um, and, you know, like, I don't want to overstate this. Dozens is not hundreds and not thousands, yeah. okay? It's just dozens. But they're breaking out in these Amazon centers and so on. They're breaking out. And you can see the raw anger of people when you see the video clips from these scenes and the managers try and talk them into going back to work. So, you know, you can't achieve anything like this. You've made your point. Let's go back to work. If you don't want to go back to work, you can take the afternoon off, but come back tomorrow. This kind of thing. And they respond without contempt. They're not doing it. They have no union. Ostensibly, they have no power. But they're not doing it. And actually, when they all look at one another and realize, no, we're not doing it, they do have power. Mm. So... Um, there's, there's that. And finally, just uh, I should comment that um, there's been a lot of work by pop-up unions, what used to be called pop-up unions. Basically, they're independent unions. Uh, so, for example, the, um, I think it's the IWGB is one of these. Um, it's done incredibly important work among new groups of workers like platform workers, those who work for Uber, Deliveroo, and so on. Um, and have uh, sort of been involved in organising a number of their wildcat strikes, as it were, um, and uh, won them some important legal victories and so on. Um, it's unfortunate that um, with, for example, Deliveroo riders, um, the um, far more conservative union, the GMB, swooped in, having never done anything on the ground, cut a sweetheart deal with the employers, which actually basically conceded almost all the employers' terms, and uh, Deliveroo was able to go out and say, uh, we're, now, uh, we're now accepting union representation mm. through the GMB. But I think that reflects the fact that there is a real threat to them. Mm -hmm. um, because if there wasn't a real threat, they wouldn't even consider being represented by a union. I remember being in work in the late 90s and early 2000s, mm. and when I asked if there was a union, they would say, no, and we have no interest in dealing with a union. Mm -hmm. Well, things are starting to shift incrementally, but it's happening. We don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned uh, labor sort of like in passing and uh, the sort of, um, just from the outside, it, it does look like the, stammer, the, the current labor party is a kind of return to Blairitism, but that might be like a, a superficial outsider's view, like that, that, that there is just a, a hollowed out centrist party that wants to, you know, manage. Um, but is, is there anything more to that or is there anything in like labor 
at the current moment that like goes against that or is that a fair assessment um, uh, it, it, it's complicated because uh, it's Blairism without the good bits yeah. um, <laughs> or without the interesting bits let's say um, I think that um, Keir Starmer wanted to lead kind of a mildly centre-left mm-hmm. party um, he appointed a lot of soft left people yeah. to, to the cabinet. This category is very opaque and vacuous. Yeah. But a lot of people who are basically associated with the left in some vague sense, um, but in the kind of moderate pro-European sense, you know, that kind of thing, um, but who aren't Blairites. And uh, over time, what he's noticed was like, and he also appointed a couple of left wingers, but, you know... Uh, like what you noticed was like he fired all the left left wingers. Like he he let the purge rip through the party apparatus because he decided that that was what was needed to give MPs the freedom to campaign the way that they wanted, mm. so that they could win elections. I mean, this is completely superstitious reason. There's no rationality or logic to that whatsoever. The idea that MPs know what the fuck they're doing in this country. <laughs> Labour MPs have never demonstrated competency um, in that regard. Um, they have no idea what people are thinking. That's unfair about yeah. all of them, but it's a tr- fair for some of them. Yeah. Anyway, um, that was what he believed was necessary. And so he starts sort of firing all his left-wing advisors or soft left advisors. Um, and he starts uh, sort of recruiting Blairites and people who are on the hard right. And he starts getting very close to Peter Mandelson, the sort of... Um, I don't know how to describe him, the sort of uh, Malfoyan presence of, uh, of New Labour. I mean, he's um, almost comically evil, but, um, uh, you know, uh, I think, I, I think uh, not only is that, that, but he at one time had, a, had some ability, like he was yeah. very good at what he did. I don't think he does anymore. Mm. I don't think he has any idea anymore. Like it's a, it's like late Vince McMahon in the <laughs> WWE. You know, yeah. he was once a genius in yeah. the dark arts. He no longer is. So um, he got close to a lot of Blairites, and they. But I think it was not by conviction, but by default. I think he just didn't have any idea of what he. You know, I mean, he's not a political thinker. He's a technocrat. Mm-hmm. Um, Oliver Eagleton's book on uh, uh, Starmer's leadership is mm. pretty good on this point. Um, that basically he's somebody who um, reforms. He you know he was the chief prosecutor mm. of the UK. Uh, he was a leading lawyer. His experience is somebody who tweaks the technical sort of apparatus, and his politics are basically sort of soft right. You mm. know, like that's kind of you know like he he realized. That in order to win the leadership, he had to sort of faint yeah. left. But he's kind of like uh, if he had uh, been the leader in twenty fifteen, which was impossible. He wasn't even a member until twenty fifteen. Yeah. Um, he would have um, probably been associated with what's called blue labor. You yeah. know, like yeah. some uh, cautiously progressive economic policies, but very mild. Yeah. Plus some really right wing social policies. Yeah. You know and. Um, there, there, you know, there was an awful lot of that. So th- I think that's where he was. But I, I think, uh, you know, his his only sort of sense of politics is the kind of um, 
office politics of you know um, running rings around people, deceiving people, and so on. But even then, I mean, I don't want to go on too much about this, but just to say, <laughs> even then, uh, Starmer, I think, advanced more by the weakness of his opponents than by his own strengths. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that he was allowed to, for example, uh, lie about Labour's policy under Jeremy Corbyn, uh, to make up policy on the hoof, to go out and give a, a conference speech which made up policy and get a rousing ovation from members who had not been told what the line was or, yeah. you know, like educated in any way, um, it just shows the weakness of the whole project. They, they didn't want to, they thought Starmer was really important for their respectability. Yeah. So um, I think he's somebody who has exploited uh, absences, you know, hmm. vacuums. Um, and there's a lot of people getting by in politics in that way, exploiting the weaknesses and um, sort of the exhaustion of their opponents more than anything else. Uh, so to that extent, he will disappear in, and will be replaced by uh, most likely either... Either it would be somebody even more right-wing and much more ideologically so, in which case Labour as a party is just going to disappear into a husk. You know, it's going to pass off by itself fairly quickly. Or um, you could see somebody like... I don't know if you know this fellow, Andy Burnham. Mm -hmm. He's the mayor of Manchester. Yeah, yeah. He comes from the Blairite sort of wing of the party, but he's no longer positioning himself in that way. Like, he's an opportunist, I think. Yeah. Um, but he's sort of started to come out punching on some pretty basic left-wing policies. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as a mayor of a big city like Manchester, which is pretty left-wing, mm -hmm. you can get away with that. Yeah. Um, but he's been able to undermine Keir Starmer sort of subtly. And I think that um, it's quite possible he could win, in which case I wouldn't expect to turn to the left or anything. I would expect possibly a bit more definition, political definition. And I would expect uh, possibly a bit less war on the left. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, like, that's to speculate. But, the, yeah, the problem is now we've got um, a timid, pusillanimous uh, leadership of the Labour Party, which decided, as an act of um, political judgment, to define itself in the first instance as we agree with the government and we'll offer forensic disagreement on the, 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 the details of delivery. In other words, we sign up to all the priorities, we question how they deliver them. Yeah. Um, and that's... Um, Confidence, not ideology, as uh, Michael Dukakis used to say. Yeah, and, uh, the, you know, like, that, that, was, that used to be how Blairite uh, yeah. sort of spin doctors and thinkers would think. Like, yeah. you accept the other side's uh, basic goals and then you hit them on the delivery. Um, and basically you end up with uh, two parties who basically agree on the fundamentals. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's not going to happen because the Conservatives have gone rapidly right-wing. And uh, that's not going to change. Like, it's not just the members. Mm. This is really important. It's not just the members who are very, very right-wing in the Labour Party. Over several decades since the Thatcher era, mm. the Parliamentary Conservative Party has been growing more and more right-wing mm -hmm. because the people selecting the MPs have become more right-wing. Um, and so the 2019 intake, radicalised by Brexit and all the rest yeah. of it, um, is just the most right-wing parliamentary concern. That's why Liz Truss um, yeah. got through. Had it been uh, a previous batch of MPs, Liz Truss, who is the most demented right-wing leader the Conservative Party will ever have, and she is going to be the leader, 
um, would not have got through to to allow the mem- members to choose her. Yeah. Uh, she would have been weeded out, and then the members would have been given two technocrats to choose from, or you know, some nominal right winger who is far too incompetent to vote for, something like that. So, I mean, that the situation we're in is one that, I mean, objectively, structurally, you would think it favours the right. Yeah. Um, well, do you want to expand on that? I mean, do you, do you just mean like the lack of a left opposition uh, combined, I guess, with the um, uh, inflation putting constraints on what the government can do so that the right can, ex- and, you know, uh, a population that's demoralized, like, uh, the, well, are, are all those the factors that, like, uh, like would objectively favor the right? Or I mean, is there anything more? Is it something... A lot, all of that. I mean, yes, first of all, inflation does mean that for the moment you can't talk about an expansionary monetary policy. Mm. That may come back, we don't know, um, but I think for the time being that's done. Um, and in that case, uh, you have to, if you're going to fund your policies, you have to talk about taxing the rich, if you're coming mm. from the left. Yeah. You have to talk about taxing the rich. Uh, there's no other way to do it. Um, and if you're talking about overhauling Britain's infrastructure, which um, maybe I should say a little a, a word or two about this. Britain's infrastructure just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, it, it's. Uh, um, I'll come back to that. But if you're talking about that, you're going to have to find the money from somewhere, and that's going to require quite a radical attack on um, the accumulated wealth of not even the ruling class, uh, but the, the the upper part of the ruling class. Um, I mean, and they will not part with that willingly. Yeah. There's going to be have to be a serious fight for them to even consider um, collaborating with yeah. that. Um, and one of the problems with capitalist development in the long term is precisely this tendency. It's not just the tendency towards the concentration and centralization of capital. Um, it's the tendency towards production of... You know, the, the, the long-term sort of engine of inequality is such that you're going to get produce um, wild skews of power. Mm. You know, like the power of a billionaire today is much, much more than the power of a millionaire like 40 years ago. Mm. I mean, it's crazy the amount of power that Elon Musk has. And mm. that, you know, like nobody wants to cross that. Like the obvious thing to do would be to um, like take some of their money. Yeah. Um, and use it to pay for stuff. There's no reason why they have to have hundreds of billions of pounds. That's not mandated by history. That's just uh, a contingent fact of how class society has developed. But nobody wants to touch it. So, um, uh, you know, that we're going to have to confront that. But for the, for the moment, um, you know, uh, you would think that the left would be on the defensive, would be, you know, defending workers' uh, conditions against... You know, in, in very difficult circumstances against a, a capitalist offensive and not getting very, uh, not getting anywhere, that uh, you know the racism uh, in this society would divide people too much to allow them to actually achieve anything together, that um, you know the inherited sort of um, what you would Jason um, Reed calls negative solidarity, mm-hmm. you know the sense that well if I not if I don't get it nobody else should. You know, I mean, I'm not paid good wages, so why should they get good wages? That kind of thing, that kind of petty, resentful kind of politics. Um, uh, you would think that that would undercut things, and it it hasn't for some reason. Um, but 
maybe this has something to do with what I was saying a moment ago, the fact that Britain doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, because people, people often uh, develop attitudes that have nothing to do with anything that um, they're allowed to, to uh, express. Mm. Like, for example, back in the 1990s, Tony Blair told us the class war was over. Same year, the British Social Attitudes Survey found that 82% of the British public said uh, there's a class war going on in this country. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't because there was a huge amount of strike action or militancy. It was just because people could look in their day-to-day lives and see, that's what's happening. That's what's happening to me. There's a lot of people who are doing very well, and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, all sorts of reasons. Well, um, you look at what's happening in this society. The NHS has been choked of funds... Since 2006, it's not since the credit crunch, it's since um, there was a fiscal crisis in 2006 um, because basically New Labour decided to pay for hospitals with what was something called private finance initiatives, which uh, was basically like the world's best mortgage for private companies because basically private companies would stump up money up front um, the, the public sector would pay them back over 30 years at exorbitant interest and then at the end of the 30 years the private company would still own the hospital yeah and so basically uh, this system of building up healthcare capacities putting in a lot of public money to do so frankly um, resulted in a fiscal crisis mm-hmm. so that's the start of that problem but then of course austerity makes it worse um, so that every single NHS trust went into the red, went into debt. Um, and, you know, there things were already pretty tough in the NHS because we've never spent as much on our health service relative to GDP as other countries. So that's one thing. Thames Water, like not Thames Water, that's just the, 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 water, the water service that I have, yeah. but, um, you know, you would have in London, but the, the privatised water companies... Mm. They are losing about, I think it was found, 24% of their water every day. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, and they are letting sewage leak into the rivers and the sea. And that's allowed. That's been voted through by politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, the energy companies, um, uh, the infrastructure is bananas. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and, uh, you know, they are obviously creaming off money. They're using monopolies mm. to cream off money. And of course, you know, like the, the system is such, it was supposed to be set up for competition. Mm. Most of the competitors have been, uh, have gone bankrupt. Um, then, you know, you look at the railways. We've got a, a system that was built in the 19th century, um, has not been upgraded very much since then, frankly. In terms of the railway lines, mm. most are not electrified, which is what you yeah. would need for a modern railway system. Um, the local connections were savaged decades ago by uh, a review led by Sir Richard Beeching, and that's never been rebuilt. And you've got a, a situation where basically the privatisation required massive subsidies from the public sector, but because they were creaming off profit, that also meant that prices went up. Mm-hmm. And uh, then increasingly, you know, like the upkeep of the infrastructure went down. We had repeated rail crashes, you know, um, uh, because the infrastructure was falling apart and they weren't looking after the signals and, and so mm-hmm. on. And now you've got a situation where they're, they're, they've had to renationalize a bunch mm-hmm. of the railways. They don't like it because they're Tories. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but in exchange for that, they're saying we want cuts, more cuts. So they're going to drive up fares for uh, passengers at the same time as they're going to have less rolling stock, more outdated rolling stock, uh, such as there is, um, less reliable services, less uh, upkeep of the infrastructure, less signals checks and so on. So basically you're going to have a service you have to pay more for, that you get less out of, and that's more likely to threaten your life. I mean, I could go on. Yeah. There's a whole series I, I, of... I should tell the listeners, I've just recently uh, to, uh, counted this interview, uh, took British uh, Rail um, uh, from Coventry to here, uh, to London, and uh, yes, it was. Uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, slowing down uh, because of problems, uh, uh, I think, on the electrical lines. or uh, and uh, But it's also like, just to compare to comparable peer countries in Europe, the, the, the rail system is much more expensive and uh, far decades behind in terms of like technology, speed, efficiency. Uh, it, it's a real mess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I can totally verify like all that. Um, and to just like to add to this, you know, uh, uh, litany of laws, you know, they we're currently in a uh, heat wave in Europe uh, and in England, going on for six weeks, it's uh, almost all anybody talks about uh, when you're having conversation, or at least always comes up. And according to The Economist, uh, several thousand Britons will have died because of this heat crisis. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, uh, so which is like, you know, like in a, any sort of wealthy country, is like, just like a scandal. Well, um, Britain is not built for any climate other than a temperate climate. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, there's no air conditioning uh, in most buildings, yeah. um, which we're going to need, frankly. Yes. But, um, like, uh, e even, you know, there, there's been some gradual improvements um, in certain forms of transport. So, for example, many trains now have air conditioning. Yeah. Not all of them, but some of them do. Um, the underground doesn't have air conditioning, and I'm not sure if it's entirely possible for them to do so, but uh, they've been trying to find ways to cool the thing because it... Until relatively recently, you could get baked in the underground or on a bus. I mean, the buses are still a nightmare. Um, you can get temperatures um, going, like, if the temperature outside is in the low 30s, inside you'll find it's in the low 40s, that kind mm. of thing. Um, so you can get absolutely frazzled, uh, you know, like, and uh, there's no real, uh, like, circulation of air. Mm. Um, it's a really unpleasant system for people to use, and that's why... You know, there's there's too much reliance on cars in this country. Mm -hmm. Like London uh, is atypical, by the way. Um, there's a much higher use of public transport and bicycles and so on. Much lower use of uh, motor cars in in the city than there is, for example, up in the northwest. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where basically the public squalor. You know, is is such mm -hmm. that people have to use their cars. So there's this form of what Raymond Williams called mobile privatization. The more you uh, attack you know, the uh, uh, sort of infrastructures of collective provision. Uh, the more you make things miserable, the more people sort of take refuge in their little bubbles, you know. And um, uh, so, but I think that people know and have always known, have known for decades that, you know, things are getting worse. Mm -hmm. You know, the, every time you look at these surveys, it used to be, you would, uh, you know, British Social Attitude surveys would ask people, do you think that life for your children will be better than it was for you, about the same or worse. And for, you know, basically since the Thatcher era, it's been increasingly, uh, you know, it's skewed towards 
worse, much yeah. worse. And I think that's just now obvious. You know, it's, it's not even, uh, you know, controversial anymore. Um, the only question is, um, you know, um, whether, I mean, I don't want to play too much into intergenerational malice here, but there's definitely a feeling among some older, uh, more right-wing people, and they do tend to vote Tory, there's definitely a vibe that, like, I'm too old to care about climate change. Um, you know, like, and, like, yeah, I mean, um, like, there's this kind of spite towards the younger generations. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's hard to explain in rational terms. This is why I always go back to psychoanalysis, because there's an aspect of politics that has nothing to do with reason and debate, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so, you know, but we've got this situation where something is cut through, the usual, usually robust sources of conservatism, mm -hmm. and millions of people. <laughs> here's where I actually finally answer your question. You asked me to describe um, some of the sort of militancy. Okay, so we've had the strikes. Um, uh, I th I believe the situation at at the moment is that a quarter of a million people have signed up to the don't pay campaign, mm -hmm. and that thirty thousand people have signed up to. Um, uh, to be organisers, mm. which is quite a significant development. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, like you didn't have, I don't think you had that level of organisation so quickly over the poll tax. Um, and then you've got the Enough is Enough campaign, which is not a single issue campaign. Um, you know, uh, don't pay is about the energy prices and it's basically saying we're not going to pay. Um, enough is Enough is a more general class campaign organised around some basic demands like we want council housing, we want a rise, a wage rise, including a minimum wage rise. Um, you know, there's a whole series of things that, you know, like five key demands. And we say, we want you to pay for this by taxing the rich. Um, and it's, it's been extraordinarily resonant. The, um, they released a video, and, uh, you know, we should always be wary of sort of measuring everything through social media, but they released a video which got 4.5 million views. And that was just on Twitter. I don't know what happened on Facebook. But that's quite significant. Mm -hmm. Like, that suggests quite a, a, a degree of resonance. Um, so I think that, um, you know, and, and one of the things that's happened is that the split between what you might call the liberal left, who basically uh, turned against Corbyn, and the radical left, who stuck with him, is somewhat being overcome at the moment. Mm -hmm. The sense of seriousness of the crisis... And the frustration with Keir Starmer hmm. has been such that people have started to converge on some basic points of analysis. Um, and that's always a good sign. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very good. And that's an optimistic note to end on. So I want to uh, thank uh, Richard Seymour for giving this uh, uh, very wide-ranging survey of uh, the, state of, uh, the state of the nation. All right, you're welcome.